Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to suspense, crime, and horror stories from the golden age of radio. I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. We love mysterious old-time radio stories, but do they stand the test of time? That's what we're here to find out. It's May 2020, and we're still under stay-at-home orders, so we join each other via Zoom to bring you another lockdown listener request. This week, our mysterious listener, Tim, requests an episode of Cloak and Dagger entitled Delay on route. Cloak and Dagger dramatized the wartime exploits of undercover agents of the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services. The agency was formed in 1942 in order to coordinate espionage activities behind enemy lines, or in the words of Cloak and Dagger's dramatic opening, this country's first all-out effort in black warfare. President Truman disbanded the OSS in 1945, but the organization was later used as the template for the Central Intelligence Agency. The radio series was based on stories from the 1946 nonfiction book, Cloak and Dagger, The Secret Story of the OSS by Corey Ford and Alistair McBain. The book also inspired Fritz Lang's 1946 film, Cloak and Dagger, starring Gary Cooper, Clearly, post-war Americans were captivated by these riveting tales of men and women who sacrificed in secret to win the war. Broadcast on NBC, Cloak and Dagger ran from May 7th to October 22nd, 1950. The program never attracted a sponsor and disappeared from the airwaves after only 24 episodes. Fortunately, 22 of them exist today, allowing old-time radio fans the opportunity to revisit this fascinating example of post-war radio entertainment. And now let's listen to Delay en Route from Cloak and Dagger, first aired October 5th, 1950. It's late at night and a chill has set in. You're alone and the only light you see is coming from an antique radio. Listen to the sounds coming from the speaker, listen to the music, and listen to the voices. Are you willing to undertake a dangerous mission behind the enemy lines, knowing that you may never return alive? What you have just heard is the question asked during the war of agents of the OSS. Ordinary citizens who to this question answered, yes. This is Cloak and Dagger. Warfare, espionage, international intrigue. These are the weapons of the OSS. Today's adventure... Delay en route. The story of an American OSS agent who found himself between two fires in fascist-held Italy is suggested by actual incidents recorded in the Washington files of the Office of Strategic Services. A story that can now be told. That was a big night in Sturza. We liberated the town that morning and everybody was drunk. But not on vino. Those Italian partisans were drunk on something they hadn't tasted since Mussolini's black shirts marched on Rome. 
freedom. There were only three fascist officials left in town, and all of them were down in the village square, hanging from a scaffold. I should have been celebrating too. After all, that was why the OSS had sent me into Italy, to help Guido Gordoni and his partisans wipe out fascists. But sitting there in the tavern that night with Rosa, Guido's sister, my mind was several thousand miles away. So, Roberto, you are going to leave us tomorrow. Huh? Uh, what, Rosa? The PT boat comes for you tomorrow night, no? The night after tomorrow night, Rosa. Just 48 hours. It's going to pick me up below Savona. Oh, and you are glad? <laughs> Was there ever a guy who wasn't glad to go home? Home? To America, you mean? But how can that be? The war is not over. I've got a furlough coming up. A delay en route to my next OSS assignment. Oh, I see. It is nice in America, eh, Roberto? Yeah. Yeah, it's nice, Rosa. It'll be autumn when I get back to Vermont. The trees will just be turning. I would like to see Vermonte. Hmm. Maybe you will someday. Oh, you know what I mean, Roberto. I would like to see it with you. Oh. Sorry, Rosa. Here's your brother. Oh, yes. Guido! Guido, over here! Ah, Rosa. Roberto. Guido. Mordino, wait! Well... Where have you been, Guido? Looking for a fat fascist pig, Alberto Pelizzo. Pelizzo, the big shipyard owner? Why would he be in Sturza? He's got a summer villa just above the town. I thought he might be hiding out there. I took some of the boys up, but the place was empty. I gotta find him tonight. Why tonight? Roberto, didn't you notice? There's still room for one more on the scaffold in the square. Huh? Oh, that's right, I forgot. You haven't been to the square, have you, Roberto? No, I haven't. You uh, don't like executions, huh? Executions are all right. It's lynchings I don't like. Those men were civilians, Guido. They were fascisti. Nevertheless, they were entitled to a trial. A trial? If they had caught you, Roberto, would they have given you a trial? That was the difference between Guido Gordoni and me. He and his partisans fought fire with fire. They'd never heard of the democratic process. But I had, and I believed in it. That was why Guido and I could fight side by side and respect each other as soldiers and yet never become friends. You've not lived under the fascisti, Roberto. You've not had a wife and child murdered, as I have. Were the men you hung in the square responsible for that? Every black shirt is responsible. The men in the square, Alberto, Pelizzo, all of them. When Guido Gordoni finds them, they pay for their crimes. They should pay, of course, but... But, 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 what, what? What, Roberto? I don't like men who say yes, but... I don't think they can be trusted. Guido, you have no right to say that to Roberto. Forget it, Rosa. I'm leaving all of you soon. You won't have to trust me much longer. I got up then and pushed my way through the crowd to the door of the tavern. 
I stepped outside. The night was beautiful. But not as beautiful, I thought, as an autumn night in Vermont. Senor Mirza. Huh? She touched my arm as she said it. She'd been standing very close to me in the shadows of the tavern wall. I'd never seen her before, but she was lovely. You are, Senor Mirza, no? Yes, I am. I wish to talk to you, Senor. Will you be kind enough to come with me? I didn't say no. It would have been hard to say no under any circumstances. Besides, her quick, frightened eyes told me it was something important. Still, I kept my hand closed around my revolver as she led me down several dark, deserted streets. This is the house, senor. You will please go down the steps to the basement. Oh, uh, you go first. There is someone inside, but please come in. Do not be alarmed. I'm not alarmed. Go ahead. Buonasera, senor. The man who rose to greet me wasn't armed, and he looked too old and too tired to be dangerous. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Alberto Pelizzo. Pelizzo. Young lady who brought you here is my daughter, Maria. It was good of you to come with her, senor. But it wasn't very wise of her to bring me. Why? Because you might turn us over to the partisans? Because I will turn you over to the partisans. I think not, senor. No? On the contrary, you will be careful to protect us from the partisans. You will take us out of Italy alive. You will see to it that we arrive safe and sound in America. What makes you think so? Is your government informed, Senor Mercer, of our recent experiments with radio-guided aerial torpedoes? I don't know. I could inform them. These experiments are being conducted in my own laboratories. I know more about them than any other man in Italy. I see. Also, a new type of submarine capable of great underwater speed. All right. Also, the long-sought electromagnetic pistol for torpedoes. All right. Also... All right. I get the point, Polizzo. I thought you would. You'll turn over this information to Allied intelligence if I get you safely out of Italy. Precisely. Well, Signor. I'll have to think about it. Don't think too long, senor. And don't discuss it with your partisan comrades. I'm quite sure that bloodthirsty Guido Gordoni would not let my usefulness to the Allies prevent him from uh, hanging me. He was right about that. Not that Guido Gordoni was bloodthirsty. He was simply an angry and bitter man. Nothing in the world would prevent him from hanging Alberto Polizzo. Well, I was pretty bitter myself as I headed back to my room above the tavern. I didn't like keeping secrets from Guido. And I didn't like helping fascists. But I knew already what I had to do. I knew that when I went aboard that PT boat in 48 hours, Polizzo and his daughter would be with me. The OSS would want it that way. Hello, Roberto. Rosa. You were gone a long time, Roberto. What are you doing in my room? Waiting for you. I, uh... I went for a walk. Yes, I know. I saw you. What do you mean, you saw me? I was watching from the window when you walked away from the tavern. 
Who is she, Roberto? That's none of your business, Rosa. I will make it my business. Is she the one who is going with you to America? Is that why you cannot take me? Is it with her that you will spend the autumn nights in Vermont? Rosa, you're a fool. No. You are a fool, Roberto. You cannot conceal her from me. I will find her before tomorrow night, and when I do... Yes. When you do... Life is very cheap in Sturza these days, Roberto. She meant it. She didn't make idle threats. She was like her brother that way. It took me a long time to fall asleep after she was gone. Getting Alberto Polizzo and his daughter safely out of Italy was beginning to look complicated. The next morning, it looked even more complicated. Rosa told me what you did last night, Roberto. It was very stupid to go alone with the strange woman. <laughs> but she was a beautiful woman, Guido. Mm-hmm. She might have led you into a trap. You know, there is still fascisti in Sturza. No important ones, I'm sure. The mayor, the magistrate, and the prefect of police are all hanging in the square. Who else could there be? Alberto Pelizzo. What makes you think... You said his villa was empty. It was. But I don't believe he had time to escape. I think he's hiding out somewhere in town. And I'm going to search every house room by room. Until I find him. And then you'll string him up too? Oh, oh, with pleasure. He might make a valuable prisoner of war. He's a big wheel in the munitions and shipping industries. He'd have a lot of information that would be useful to the Allies. And who would trust the information of a fascist? Not you, apparently. You're right, not me. His information will not save him. If I find him, Roberto, I'll kill him. And that settled that. There was no question from then on of letting Guido in on my plans. Not if I hoped to save Polizzo's neck. And I had to save it now. The information that Guido scoffed at could shorten the war by weeks, months, even years. Ten minutes later, I was knocking at the cellar door. It was opened immediately. But not by Polizzo or his daughter. Si, senor. Who are you? Dominic, senor, the owner of this building. There was a man and his daughter here last night. They are still here. Come in, senor. Ah, Good morning, senor. We have been waiting for you. We expected you somewhat earlier than this. Oh, so sorry. I'll try not to disappoint you after this. You are ready, I presume, to take us out of Italy? I'd much prefer to turn you over to my friends. Oh, of course. But unfortunately, your preference is not what matters. Unfortunately. When do we leave, Signor? You leave Sturza tonight, Italy, tomorrow night. Signor, we are grateful. We knew you would not fail us. I'm not doing this for you. Naturally. We understand that, don't we, Maria? Yes, Father. Still, we will reward Signor Mercerno. You in your way, and I in mine. Let's cut the talk, shall we? You've got to get out of here. Get out now, you mean? But you said tonight... You can't stay in this cellar till then. You'll have to find a new place to hide. Why, senor? Because the partisans are looking for you. They're covering Sturza house by house. No, they do not know where we are. They think you might be. They're not taking any chances on letting you escape. They want to string you up where you belong. Where can we go, senor? How can we hide? I don't know yet. I thought maybe the... Open up in there! It is there. 
Right. We are trapped in here. Unless there's another way out. If there is no other way, senor. Please, senor, please. You must do something. Shut up. Don't let me. Shut up. Dominic, what's that iron trap door on the wall? The coal chute, senor. Open it. Just big enough. Where does it lead? To the rear of the house. But all right, all right. Let's get going. You first, Maria. You want me to climb that filthy coal chute? What about my clothes? What about your neck? She scrambled up the chute and Polizzo followed her. I went last. I didn't see what happened to Dominic, the landlord, and I didn't much care. Where now, she? You've got to lie low someplace where they won't find you before tonight. But there is no such place. The best bet's your villa. The villa? They've already looked there. They won't go back. Those thieves and murderers have sacked our beautiful villa. They're neither thieves nor murderers. They're loyal patriots. We have our name for them, senor. You have yours. And while we're together, we'll use mine. Now beat it. I arranged to meet them at the villa at dusk. I watched them trudge off, smeared with coal from the chute, looking like the peasants they despised. <laughs> At least there wasn't much chance they'd be recognized. But I wasn't exactly recognizable either, so I washed off in a little stream at the edge of town. Then I went back to my room. Where have you been, Roberto? It was Guido. He was sitting at the table in the center of the room, and lying in front of him was his revolver. Where have you been, Roberto? Out. Out? Where? Just out. Oh, just out, huh? All right, Rico. Bring him in. Inside you. Here is a friend of yours, Roberto. He appeared in the doorway, prodded by Rico's carbine. He was no friend, only an acquaintance, a very recent acquaintance. He was the landlord. Dominic. You were hiding a man in the cellar of your house, Dominic? See. Si. Well, who was he? Who was he? Uh, Alberto Pelizzo. Alberto Pelizzo, huh? And he had a caller this morning? See. Si. Who was the caller? That man, Signor Mercer. All right, take out the old man, Rico. Please. Oh. you. Roberto? Well? I want Pelizzo. You can't have him. Where is he? I won't tell you. You are protecting a fascist then? I'm doing more than protecting him. I'm taking him out of Italy, to America. To America? Why? Why, so he can have a, a fair trial? No, so he can turn over information. Information? Yes. You've seen it, this information? It's not on paper, it's in his head. And you believe him? Yes. And you believe he's going to give it up once he's got to America? It's worth the chance. How much? What? How much is it worth, Roberto, to you? Why, you... The whole $50,000? $50,000? That's how much he's got sewn in the lining of his overcoat, his landlord told me. I didn't know it. You're lying, Roberto. Pelizzo is paying you well. And I shall have to deal with you as I would with any other traitor. I give you one more chance, Roberto. Where is that fascist? His hand moved for his revolver on the table, but my hand moved too. My fingers caught the edge of the table and it flipped it. Sprawling back in his chair, the gun clattered to the floor and I kicked it out of his reach. Dirty, filthy, traitor! My 
fist caught him on the point of the chin. His head snapped back and he slumped to the floor. Out. I didn't like to do that, Guido. Sorry. You should be sorry, Roberto. Rosa. Maybe you will tell me where the fascist is, Roberto. I'm not telling anyone, Rosa. Then I will do what my brother did not have the chance to do. I don't think you will. Don't come near me, Roberto. If you try to get this gun, I swear I'll kill you. But you won't, you know, because you don't believe I'm a traitor. You are. And even if I were, you wouldn't shoot me because you love me. No, not anymore. I hate you. Then why don't you pull the trigger? (laughs) Give me the gun, Rosa. Take it. Take it and go. I went down to the street. The car that Guido had commandeered for his use in Sturzo was parked in front of the tavern. I went over to the driver. Antonio, Guido wants you. He is upstairs, Signor Mercer? Yes, in my room. Hurry. Mr. Ben, Signor. at Polizzo's villa 20 minutes later. Maria met me at the door. The way she was dressed, you'd have thought she was sailing for America on the Queen Mary. Signor Merso, how nice that you have come early. Where's your father? In the library. This way. We were not expecting you until tonight. My plans have changed. Polizzo. Ah, Signor Merso. Have arrived just in time. In time? For what? Maria and I have opened one last bottle of wine from our cellar. We shall be happy to have you share it with us. No, thanks. Maria, another glass. I said no, thanks. Oh, come now, my dear fellow. Here, Father. Good. We will drink to you, Signor, our benefactor. And then we will drink to the new world where we are going. A world where these differences between us can be forgotten... A world where we can be friends. There's no such world, Polito. Oh, but of course there is. Your glass, senor. I don't drink with fascists. You have uh, consorted with rabble too long, Mercer. Your manners are reflected. My manners are likely to get worse if I consort with your kind much longer, so let's get going. You said we would leave tonight. There's been a change of plans, Father. That's right. We're starting for the coast right away. Get your things. Very well. And Pelizzo. Yes? We'll be driving through fascist-held territory most of the way. You might be tempted to make a break for it. If you do, I promise I'll bring you back and personally hang you from that scaffold. We left then. I drove the car. Polizzo sat in back, but not Maria. She was beside me, very close beside me. Her perfume was heavy and sweet. Your thoughts are so far away, senor. Very far. (laughs) You do not like me, do you? No. You do not think I am beautiful? Not nearly as beautiful as my thoughts. They are of another woman? No. What then? (laughs) A place called Vermont. 
It was night when we reached the main highway to Savona. Guido's partisans were far behind us by then, and I thought it would be clear sailing. I was wrong. What is the matter? Why do you slow down? Look up ahead. Ah, roadblock. Roadblock? Partisans? No, not partisans. This time it's your friends. Remember, Polizzo, I'm waiting for you to say just one wrong word. Let me see your papers. You're in the back seat first. Here they are. You will find them quite in order. I will be the judge of that. Alberto Pelizzo. Yes. So, you are Alberto Pelizzo, are you? Yes, I am. All right. Come with me, all three of you. But why? What is the matter? This man is lying. Alberto Pelizzo is dead. They led us to a small house down the road. The one with the rifle stayed with us while the other one disappeared into a back room. I was still watching Polizzo. I was still waiting for him to say that word. Here is the man, Major. The man who calls himself Alberto Polizzo. Let me see him, Corporal. So, why should he not call himself Alberto Polizzo? You recognize me then, Major? But of course, senor, and I am delighted to see you. Our information was that you had been captured by partisans. I deeply apologize for the inconvenience you, uh, we may have caused you. No, no, no. Apologies are necessary, Major. Uh, now, may my daughter and I proceed to Savona? Certainly, senor. And uh, this man who is with you? Oh, uh, this man? See, si. You wish him to accompany you, senor? Uh... Well, well, yes, of course. This man is my chauffeur. I didn't get it. I didn't understand why he'd done it. Not until we'd started toward the car. The major who escorted us walked ahead with Maria. I dropped back to have a little private talk with Polizzo. You uh, could have turned me over to them, but you didn't. It wasn't out of the kindness of your heart, I'm sure. Why else, Mercer? You have been kind to us. We are kind to you. No fascist was ever kind for a reason like that. Can you think of another reason? Maybe. You uh, have no way of leaving Italy without me. You know the war's lost. If you're still here when the Allies march into Rome, you won't have any way to save your precious skin. You want to get out while you can. <laughs> You're no fool, Senor Mercer. You can understand my reasoning, can't you? Sure, I can understand it. It's an old story. Rats always desert a sinking ship. Why, you insult... Easy, easy, watch it, the Major. I was just telling your charming daughter, Senor Pelizzo, that there is really no need for you to go to Savona. Huh? After tomorrow night, you could return to your villa at Sturza. The partisans have taken Sturza, Major. And not for long, Senor. A full division of our infantry is on its way from Genoa to carry out a surprise attack on them. We are going to deal with this bandit Guido Gardone once and for all. Within 48 hours, it will be Guido Gordoni himself who will be hanging from that scaffold in the village square. That gave me something to think about the rest of the way. I kept on thinking about it all the next day, and I thought of Vermont, too. Yes, I thought a lot about Vermont and how those trees would look in the fall. To anybody who was lucky enough to see them... 
The roar of the surf against a lonely stretch of beach below Savona drowned the noise of the PT boat's motors. We didn't hear it, but we saw it lying offshore. The dinghy it put over its side scraped against the hard sand of the beach. Lieutenant Mercer? Yes? Olson's mate Curtis, sir. Do these people go aboard too, Lieutenant? Oh, yes, yes. Here's a letter. Give it to your skipper. It explains who they are. Yes, sir. But, uh, but aren't you coming, sir? No. Senor Mercer, you're not going with us? I don't understand. I think I do, Maria. The noble Senor Mercer is going back to warn his friends in Sturz of the surprise attack. That's right, Polito. Oh, no, Senor. Why should you bother with that rabble? They happen to be my allies. But you said they would kill you if they saw you again. They will. I'm hoping they'll listen to my warning anyway. But that is foolish to risk your life for them. It does not make sense. It wouldn't to you, Maria. Not yet. Maybe after you've been in America for a while it will. Take him away, Curtis. Yes, sir. So I didn't go to Vermont. I went back to Sturza instead. It was noon the next day when I walked into the tavern. Guido was there. And Rosa. Roberto, you've come back. Yes, I've come back. Well, well, the traitor returns. Maybe you didn't believe me when I said I'd kill you. I believed you, Guido. Rico, take his gun. <laughs> that won't be necessary, Rico. Here's my gun. Roberto! Quiet, Rosa. You're ready to die, traitor? As soon as I've given you my report. There's a full division of fascist infantry moving up from Genoa. They're planning to spring a trap tonight. You'd better get out of Sturza. I don't believe you. The fascists are too busy at Salerno to send a division here. All right, I'll tell my best, Guido, if you don't believe me. I believe him, What Guido. are you doing, Rosa? Get away from him. No. Get out of the way. I tell you I'm going to kill him. Then you'll have to kill me, too. Rosa, I... Very well. We will see if you're right about him, Rosa. Rico, we're moving out of Sturza immediately. Pass the order along. See, si, Guido. But what about Roberto? What will you do with him? We'll take Roberto with us. If the fascisti do not attack tonight... There will be no more room on the scaffold tomorrow. The fascists did attack that night, but there wasn't a partisan left in Sturza. We had evaporated into the hills. Yes, I said we. I went on working with Guido Gordoni, helping to direct the campaign against the blackshirts. We were never friends, Guido and I, but we did have a common enemy. A year later, I got back to Vermont. That was a long time to wait, but not as long as I might have waited if Alberto Polizzo had not given information concerning secret weapons to the OSS. And once again, the report of an OSS agent closes with the words, Mission accomplished. Listen again next week for another true adventure from the files of the OSS on... Cloak and Dagger. Heard in today's Cloak and Dagger adventure as Robert Mercer was Grant Richards, Guido Arnold Moss, Alberto Pelizzo, Louis Van Ruten. Script was written by Ken Field and music was under the direction of John Garth. Sound effects by Max Russell and Al Finelli. Engineering, Don Abbott. Today's OSS adventure was based on the book Cloak and Dagger by Corey Ford and Alistair McBain. This program is produced by Louis G. Cowan and Alfred Hollander under the direction and supervision of Sherman Marks. Three chimes mean good times on NBC.
That was Cloak and Dagger and the episode Delay on Route here on the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast. Once again, I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. That was a listener request coming to us from a listener named Tim who asked for the uh, Cloak and Dagger episode. A uh, reminder that we are uh, in May of 2020 and we're doing a lot of listener requests because we're in lockdown and doing recording via Zoom which I think is hilarious because I keep thinking about someone listening to these, I don't know, five, 10 years from now, and going, oh my God, they were using Zoom. <laughs> it's like having AOL as an email right now. Mm. It's hilarious. And I know people that do. Anyway, so let's start things off. First of all, it was awesome to have something from a series we have not listened to before. I really was excited and happy for that, nor have I listened to it in my uh, own time. And I've had it on my list for a long time. I keep coming across it. And I think one of the reasons I never got around to listening to it is that I don't think this is going to jump into our format of the podcast. And so it was really nice to finally get a chance to listen to Cloak and Dagger and figure out what it's all about. Now let's start with the opening. That's a fantastic opening. Are you willing to take a dangerous mission behind enemy lines knowing you may never return alive? Yeah, that. It's, it's nice because it gives you an out right away. Because if you're like, nope, you don't have to listen. <laughs> <laughs> yep, exactly. Right? There's an old thing in uh, radio advertising when back in the day when I used to write copy for radio. They said, never ask a question in radio op- copy. Because if you ask a question and the answer is no, then they won't listen to the rest of the ad. Do you have <laughs> dirty floors? Well, no. Then you're not going to hear about mop and glow. <laughs> So it's a fantastic opening. I love everything about it. I'm going to get this note out of the way because it's such an odd note. I don't know if anybody's going to connect with me on this. Have either of you heard of or played the video game called Medal of Honor? Heard of it. I have not played it. I don't play video games anymore. Get out. (laughs) I'm over the age of 10, guys. (laughs) So I don't either, except we had a thing happen called a pandemic and they told Mm -hmm. me I couldn't leave the house. And so I went and I found this old PS2. One of the games I still had was Medal of Honor. And I am telling you, someone out there is going to understand after listening to what I'm talking about. This was like listening to one of the levels of Medal of Honor, which is a World War II shoot the Nazis game and sneak around corners and shoot people and meet people that have accents. So <laughs> it, was, it was really interesting because I have just been playing that to pass the time and I'm on I don't know, a level. I don't know what level I'm on. It just keeps going. It won't end. And it's really similar. But there, that's my weird thought. Good note. All right, let's vote. <laughs> I have a weird little, uh, before we start talking about it too much, thought that was in my head of us being Midwestern and that we were going to have to discuss this and keep saying Cloak and Dagger. <laughs> <laughs> dagger, dagger. So Joshua, let's throw it to you. What are your initial thoughts on the old Cloak and Dagger? Had you ever listened to it before? I've never listened to it before. I found it really fascinating, particularly the moral and narrative conflict. And I'm assuming based on our mysterious listener Tim's email that this was a bit of a departure from the series, putting the 
protagonist in a bit of a dilemma where usually they're fighting the fascists or fighting the Nazis and he's in a position to protect right. a fascist. So that I found fascinating for several reasons, uh, just the departure from the norm, but also that it takes the time to really lean into the arguments on both sides of what is justice without the democratic process. Uh, but it also takes the time to to point out that, hey, arrogant American, your wife and child wasn't killed by these fascists and you haven't been living here. So it, there's a lot to unpack in this episode. Yeah. yeah, it's a very fascinating, historically, for sure. I think that without even a vote, I think we can all agree, and it was pointed out in Joshua's intro that he wrote as well, that this is of historical significance. Does anybody disagree with that? I mean, that's tough of how much this radio show in particular is of historical significance versus the content of what the story it's telling, that is absolutely of historical significance. I also think that the show itself is historically significant in the sense that we really wanted stories of heroes after the war. Memorial Day is coming up, and every Memorial Day, there's five or six war movies that I love, and they are those 1950s bloodless, dying-with-your-boots-on, heroic <laughs> And I know that they're BS as far as war goes. And it's not saving Private Ryan, but God, I love those movies. The, the way they depict how war was, and I think this is very indicative of that. We want to look back on what just happened to us a few years earlier with a very specific lens to help. Yes and no, because it's very shortly after the war talking five years. So yes, it still has a little bit of the propaganda quality of wartime entertainment because of its proximity and that the American is depicted as very heroic and doing the right thing. However, it's looking forward in that it is dealing with more nuanced issues in war. I don't think during the war you would have a radio drama that shows your allies hanging their enemies in the no. street. No, and I agree with that. And that's why I say historical significance. It's at a specific time in our country where both things were happening. And those things mm -hmm. were happening in the movies as well, that they were heroic depictions of what we had done, along with some hard questions. I mean, Road to Burma is a difficult movie in some ways to watch and also kind of goofy uh, in some ways, you know, like there's a bunch of movies like that. Between 1950 and 1955, especially, they all historically kind of towed that line. And the line I really love, don't push me too far into thinking too much about just enough. Let yeah. me think about war just enough. It's very striking and I like very much that it does give fair screen time, radio time, whatever, to uh, both sides of this argument, but it is unequivocally, both you know, narratively and all around, like there's the one side that's right according to this story, even if they're totally fair to the other side. I was just about to comment on that because I think what is fascinating about it is also frustrating about it because it seems like the dialogue and the scenes are presenting two sides of an argument. And then as soon as it moves into narration, it's far more didactic. As Tim said, it does not let you consider what is right yourself. It tells you. It's very definitive. I, I didn't, wasn't frustrated by that. I found that this telling both sides 
was a very interesting aspect of a show I took to be. This is kind of, if you take away the name and place, this is kind of a standard war adventure storytelling. Here's what frustrated me about it. It frustrated me from a narrative point of view because this dialogues, the discussion of justice through a democratic process or justice through whatever means are available to you in the moment present the possibility of a story that you're not quite sure where it's going to go. But once it establishes its firm point of view, you know it can only go one direction. So every time there's a surprise, you pretty much know how it's going to play out because the American has to win and he has to prove that he's right. And you just hit on why I love it so much. (laughs) It's predictable. Yep. But like I said, there are certain types of World War II movies that I like that aren't too challenging, that depict things in a heroic and noble way. And I've said it many times in this podcast, this is a classic example of infallible hero. And we had a lot of that going on, especially after the war, where we wanted our heroes to be straight and narrow and true. And you could count on that and trust that. I don't think it's anything intellectually challenging or... I think we're almost talking about two different things here because I'm not saying that I I find infallible heroes even boring. I'm saying that when there's literally an almost omniscient voice telling you what is right coming into the story, it takes some of the suspense away. I'm just purely talking about it from a narrative point of view. This, more than anything I've heard in a long time, points out how a strong authorial voice that overreaches can ruin suspense. Yep. I don't think there is any suspense. I don't think this really fits the format of this podcast for a lot of reasons. It almost has some great moments of suspense if you trusted things could go many different ways. Correct. I think when Rosa pulls a gun on him, if you could trust that maybe she'd shoot him. When he returns to the village to warn them that the fascists are coming, if we didn't know what a strong point of view it was coming from, we could think maybe this guy's gonna die doing this. Or maybe Guido's going to kill him. Actually, my frustration with the episode, and I totally 100% just brought this with me, nothing to do with the actual content. When I heard like OSS World War II story, I am so in the deception, the manipulation, the secrets. And I go in and there is none of that. (laughs) Everyone's exactly what they seem like. There is just, who's that guy? He's my chauffeur. Okay, and that's all the spy stuff there is. (laughs) Tim, you make a great point. Uh, So once I let go of that, I like, okay, this is more like air quotes, James Bond kind of spy thing of, I say my name loudly and blow things up. (laughs) Way to encapsulate (laughs) the Bond films. Joshua, I agree with you 100%. I think it's doing exactly what it's setting out to do. I don't think they want any suspense. And I think it is opinionated. This is about a guy that did the right thing in World War II and part of the OSS, and he was a hell of a guy. And that's the story. (laughs) I will also put in there, because he kept talking up about Vermont, Yeah, that the little background on the voice in my head was saying, the adventures of young Bernie Sanders fighting the fascists. (laughs) Well, Bernie was, I mean, young. I mean, he was 65 back then. Yeah, he would just talk the fascists to death. (laughs) (laughs) Let me just get this out there. I really liked this, but this is really aimed at me. You're talking about a guy that will throw in the Lone Ranger and Sergeant Preston of the Yukon for the same reasons. 
I'm not going to be shocked by anything. There's not going to be any twists. There's not going to, I know what road we're going down, but this, I think you get me wrong though. Cause I think this is way better than the Lone Ranger. <laughs> it's way more surprising. I'm not giving it a hard time. In fact, it's one of those things where in some ways I'm complimenting it. It promised enough that I was disappointed every time it moves back into Lone Ranger square jawed American hero mode. It loses a lot of its power. And I loved the half of it that was in conversation with other characters of different ideologies and working things out. I did not expect that. And I love that about it. I wish it had left room for suspense within that. Yeah, I don't think, Joshua, that we're talking about two separate things as much as we're talking about two separate things. I'd be curious if people have heard other episodes to know how much this is an outlier, dipping into deeper issues here than the average episode, because it really struck me as this show is, like Eric is saying, like this is an adventure show that for the most part doesn't really dive into these kinds of things. And it really seems formulaic and just happens in this one episode to have some more issues that are interesting. Yeah. For example, we're talking about a lot of general things. And I want to point out one bit of dialogue that I think is the best in the entire script. And it's when Guido is making his case for handling the fascists with a rope. (laughs) And he says uh, the fascists killed his wife and child. And Roberto asks, were the men you hung in the square responsible for that? To which Guido replies, every black shirt is responsible for that and they'll pay for their crimes. So Guido is expressing this kind of idea of shared culpability that I think the country's just starting to grapple with looking back at Nazi Germany and regular citizens. How much were they aware of what was going on? So that's interesting. And then further, Roberto says, well, they should pay for their crimes, but, and Guido gets this great last line, a very 21st century line. And he says, I don't like men who say yes, but sounded like the beginning of an argument on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) That felt like that scene could be written today. It did not feel 70 years old, like other elements of the script did. I am always fascinated by the discussion of culpability in war. It's really a fascinating topic to me when someone says, well, I was just following orders. And I have so much empathy for that. And I also don't. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I can't wrap my head around how I feel about that. If they were threatening my family, or if I knew that I had to do these things in order to survive, would I stand up and say, nah, I'd rather die? I think it grapples with that a little bit. Like, hey, are these guys responsible? It's also historically, I don't know how much it's World War II specifically, but the question of, well, if they were soldiers, that would be one thing, but these were civilians. And this sort of old-fashioned sense of war is just soldiers. People with positions of power, civilian power, though. I think they mentioned it's the mayor, it's the head of the police in the village. So they are people in power who were working with the fascists. But he specifically says if they were soldiers, that would be one thing to execute them. I have not listened to the other shows. We keep saying that this is an outlier of the normal cloak and dagger. Uh, How do we know that? Did you guys sit and listen to a bunch of cloak and daggers? Well, uh, Tim mentioned it specifically in his email, which we did not include in the opening because his email went into detail about the plot of the episode, which I, I didn't want to spoil at the top. Right. But he felt it was interesting because it put the OSS operative in a different position than usual having to protect a fascist and actually get him out from under the nose of an ally for what he believed to be a good reason. I'll tell you this, that I'm going to listen to more Cloak and Dagger because it seems to me to be aimed right at me. The easy listening 
old time radio, you know, that passive listening, that great to fall asleep to. It doesn't challenge me. Like I said, I only listen to Sergeant Preston of the Yukon to hear uh, winter wind sounds. It's, it's calming. Uh, so, I, I think it's a hugely unfair comparison. To- <laughs> it, it is unfair. I mean, that's pablum. This is not pablum. <laughs> but what Tim's saying is that if this was an outlier, then it must be on the other end, less uh, controversial. So I'm just assuming that it gets more, yay, Americans, yay, our heroes, look at all these heroes, <laughs> and which is great. And I'm probably going to, this Memorial Day, throw in about three or four cloak and daggers while I'm watching The Longest Day and all the rest of my favorite movies. Well, one of the things we haven't talked about that really makes it stand out to me is like, ah, this seems like this is not meant to be highbrow material, is the women. That you have the woman who was in love with him and the woman who wants to sleep with him for other reasons. And that's basically their characters. Oh, yeah. They're two polar opposite tropes. It's the love-struck weak one and the sexually rapacious evil one. What contributes to me thinking of, like, James Bond, of, like, this is just ridiculous. And listening to it, it really jumped out at me, like, this is absurd, these characters. (laughs) The characters are every femme fatale that has an accent in every episode of Hogan's Heroes. (laughs) (laughs) The idea that she's in love with him, and he knows it, he doesn't acknowledge it at all ever, and he's not in love with her, how does that even happen? (laughs) Well, he's got all these big manly ideas to think about, like justice (laughs) and victory at all costs and and Vermont. Right, there's a lot of Vermont talk. If you live in Italy, you're thinking all the time like, hmm. Vermont. <laughs> Which makes you a crappy person because well, he's, nicer to I her. thought they were playing on spy tropes that you let these affections develop to see how you can use and manipulate the person who has feelings for you. It Rose. pays off. She's going to shoot him and he just says, oh, but you love me, right? Thanks. <laughs> bye. And the whole time I was going, it'd be great if she just shot him. It'd be so surprising and awesome. She's not going to do it. <laughs> Yeah, no, we knew what was coming. One idea that I really liked in here that seemed something that I wish more people appreciated today is the line from Roberto who says, that's why we could fight side by side, speaking of Guido, respect one another as soldiers and yet never be friends. This idea that you can be an ally with someone and still have an ethical disagreement, sort of something we've culturally lost. (laughs) (laughs) You're wrong. You're wrong, Joshua. You are wrong. (laughs) There is no such thing. But it's an interesting thread they pull throughout here because there's another scene then with Polizzo, the fascist, where he tries to explicitly say to Roberto, one day we will be friends. And that's a road too far for him. He knocks the glass out of his hand and said, you know, (laughs) I don't drink with fascists. You just brought up four things in one sentence. First of all, that's one of my favorite lines in the whole thing. I don't drink with fascists. So that's a great old school hero line from the war. Two, there are two characters named Alberto, right? The main character is Alberto and then the uh, the, the last remaining. Like Robert. It's Roberto and Alberto. He's probably Robert. They just call him Roberto because they're Italians. Yeah. And but I heard Al- I heard them both being called Alberto. And I was like, that is some lazy writing. It was lazy listening. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's cleared up. The name Alberto Palicio is said so many times, like the, his whole name. And each time they say it, it's like they're speaking poetry. 
Alberto Paligio. From now on, whenever anyone casually asks me, hey, Joshua, what you doing? I'm going to respond with, looking for a fat fascist pig. I love that. <laughs> the last point that you brought up was about narration. When he knocks the glass of wine out of his hand, there was something that did stick with me, and that was the inconsistency of the narration. There are moments in this where it's overly narrated. This is how I hit him. This is what happened when I hit him. This is how he fell when I hit him. Instead of just hearing him get hit and hit the floor, right? So there's these narrative scenes that are explaining too much. And then there are these great moments where he doesn't say, I knocked the wine glass out of his hand. He just does. And we hear it and we know. What are you doing? Are you overly narrating or are you letting the Foley speak? And I think it went back and forth. And I think from a really critical point of view, they needed to make up their mind if this was going to be 100% narrated or not. And I thought it was a beautiful moment when he knocked the glass of wine out of his hand because you could hear it and it sounded great. Overall, though, I think the the Foley, they had limited skills and resources for this. The footsteps are all very weird. Well, this is transcribed by this point. I don't think it's done live. I think it is put together completely in studio, and I'm sure they're all on sound effects records now. And yeah, it doesn't always line up that well. I mean, it's hard after you've heard like 1950s Dragnet that is so precise and so textured to hear something like this that is a little fast and loose. With, and I don't uh, say that to be dismissive of it's bad. I just think they did not have the resources that Dragnet had. Yeah. I'm willing to agree with you. I think you're right, though. Some of the footsteps didn't match where they were and where they were going. I do hope that in the letter that he sent to the PT boat with the actual guys, that one of the things in that letter was he has $50,000 in his overcoat shaking <laughs> down. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah, they kind of. You're just going to let him go with that? $50,000 in today's money is a trillion. Take your yeah. coat. Go be rich in America. <laughs> <laughs> that is the motto under the Statue of Liberty, Tim. <laughs> there were a lot of red herrings, particularly toward the end of this. Like, I wasn't sure what suspense they were going for. There was that moment where the script treats it like a twist that. Polizzo does not turn in Roberto to the fascists at the roadblock, but we already know he wants to get out of Italy safe. I mean, presumably there was the fear that he just wanted to get out of the partisan-held territory of Italy. But again, we know the American has to be proved right, so it wasn't terribly suspenseful. Um, So I think that $50,000 and that whole sequence with the fascists was just a little bit of padding. We, we need a sort of suspense moment here. And they just, okay, so maybe they get caught. No, they don't. That's fine. <laughs> so that would have been great narration right there. <laughs> Skip right over the scene. Well, let's send this thing to a vote. Tim, you're starting. See, this is weird. I definitely enjoyed this. But the parts of it that sort of struck me as odd were specifically parts that I might say, like, this doesn't necessarily stand the test of time. It's really old fashioned in some of its women, particularly I thought with like every woman falls in love with him and instantly and it'd be perfectly reasonable in like early James Bond movies. But there's a reason those doesn't show up in modern James Bond movies because it's so weird and dated to here. So definitely enjoyed it. I think this episode in particular was a really high accomplishment 
for a show that for the most part just does sort of standard adventure. It's a very twisty way of like, pretty good. I <laughs> I agree. It's very tropey and it's very simple, but I love the opening. I love the adventure quality. As you guys know, I love adventure stuff a lot. I would say it's historically significant for the reasons we discussed as well. It's not a classic, but it's this for sure for me. A lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, I essentially agree with you guys. I think I like it because of the complex philosophical arguments it plays with and throws away. <laughs> I think it is fascinating for that reason. But I was a little disappointed, like Tim said, particularly with the female tropes. I mean, I don't even mind taking something in the context of its own time if it was interesting or fun. The story elements with them are really predictable. And I think we're really predictable in 1950. So yeah, it is both historically significant, yet it's very modern and it stands the test of time and it doesn't. It's a really weird story. I, I don't know what my reaction is to it entirely. <laughs> I liked it and I didn't, which makes me like it. <laughs> I'm going to be listening to more of these. I'll check in with you guys and let you know how it goes. <laughs> All right, we'll be waiting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Tim, tell them stuff. Please go visit ghoulishdelights.com. That is the home of this podcast. You'll find other episodes there. We've done a lot of other episodes. Uh, you'll also find that's a great way to get a hold of us. Uh, you can leave a message. You can comment on episodes. You'll get links to social media pages. If you have an episode you'd like us to listen to, like our listener, Tim, just let us know and we'll add it to the list. You can also go to patreon.com slash the morals and support this podcast. Uh, right now, uh, we have a lot of great perks. We have a monthly podcast dealing with serials and cliffhangers. Um, we also have special access to our online Park Square show. So uh, if you are in the mood to support a podcast, why don't you try ours? And if you would like to check us out uh, for our live shows that we were doing at Park Square Theater, but are temporarily doing them in a different way. Uh, we are now doing them live on the internet. You can still buy tickets at parksquaretheater.org. What we do is recreations where we go in a studio and record them, and then you buy the ticket, you come in, we do the introductions, we play our highly edited recordings, and then we uh, come back out and we talk some more about them. And uh, we are doing... Um, original works, and we are doing lost episodes that don't exist anymore of old-time radio shows, and we're also doing literary adaptations. And coming up in June of 2020 is our literary adaptations, one written by uh, Tim, which is... The Great God Pan by Arthur Machen. And the other one written by Joshua, which is... The Adventures of the Egyptian Tomb by Agatha Christie. On June 15th. So go get your tickets at parksquaretheater.org to hear us uh, put our money where our mouth is, so to speak. Actually perform these things. All right. Uh, what's coming up next? Uh, next, we have another listener request, and we will be returning to The Shadow for an episode titled The Wig Makers of Doom Street. Until then... Look out! Moonlight in... Mm, Vermont. Vermont.